passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Take out your Bibles, uh, take out your notes as well. You're ready to do some studying this morning. Um, while you're getting ready to... T- Turn now, actually turn to Ephesians chapter 2 if you want a little heads up. That's where we'll be this morning. And while you're doing that, I just have a question for you. Think back on the Christmases that you've been involved in. And what was the best Christmas gift you ever received? Well, she answers it all the time for me. It's my secretary. It's my, but anyway, what... Um, what was the best Christmas gift you received? Now, for some people, they're going to think back on things like maybe a car. They went under the tree and they um, saw a small package. They unwrapped it. It was, a, it was a, some car keys. And they went in the garage and there was a, a car with a big bow on it. And they remember that as a great Christmas gift. I know other people, they unwrapped a small package under the tree and it turned out to be a ring. And their boyfriend got down on his knees, and he proposed, and they were engaged on Christmas. That was a great Christmas gift. And still other people, they look back on being married around Christmas. And the question I ask for you is, as you think back on previous Christmases, what was your best Christmas gift? Now, this morning, I'm going to tell you about what I think is your best Christmas gift. And everybody but Tammy probably was thinking of something else. But the honest truth is, like Tammy said, the best Christmas gift that any of us have received is Jesus. Now, I know we're in church, and Jesus is always the answer to everything in church. And so it sort of sounds trite to say that Jesus is your best Christmas gift. But honestly, it is true that he is the best Christmas gift we could have ever received. And this morning... We're going to find out why. We are in a small series as we prepare for Christmas called The Gift of the Son, where we're looking at a couple select passages in the book of Ephesians. And as I mentioned at the outset, we're going to be studying Ephesians chapter 2, the first 10 verses this morning. So I'd like to ask you to stand and have your copy of God's Word open as we read chapter, or verses 1 through 10 of Ephesians chapter 2. Follow along in your copy of God's Word. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That, end the reading, that ends the reading of God's word, and you may be seated. There's a lot of words in those verses, but actually they're rather simple in the way they are organized together. Verses 1 through 3 talk about what life is like for people before they meet Jesus, or people who are apart from Jesus. Then verses 4 through 7 that tells us what happens to us, or what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. And then at the very end, verses 8 through 10 tell us how we live in response to what we have received through Jesus Christ. So it's real simple. It's this is what you were before, this is what you are after Jesus, and then this is how you live because of what God's done for you. So with that simple, structure, that simple structure in mind, let's go ahead and dive right in on your outlines and work our way through these verses. Before Jesus, we were spiritually dead and deserving God's wrath in the lake of fire. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, this first thing that Paul says is not very popular today when he says that you were dead in your sins and trespasses. He says that each one of us is born by nature a spiritual zombie. We are literally the walking dead when we come into this world. Now, I know some of you may disagree with that. You're like, people aren't dead. They're very much alive. Well, people may be physically alive, but the Bible says that when people are born, they are born spiritually dead. They have no relationship with God whatsoever, and there is nothing they can do on their own to fix that. Notice, Paul says that people are not by nature spiritually sick. Sick people can help themselves, right? People are by nature spiritually dead. Dead people can't do anything because there is no life in them. As I thought about this for a little bit and reflected on one of the unique aspects of my job, which is oftentimes I get called to a house when somebody is getting ready to pass and die, and I'm there when somebody dies, and oftentimes I'm there when the undertaker comes in, and what happens is the family leaves and the undertaker is going to take the body. And sometimes you have big people, and I'm a six-foot-two guy, and so the undertaker looks at me and he says, hey, can you help me get the guy in the bag? And so, you know, I thought I'd help out. And it's sort of weird when you grab a dead body. It's very different than a living body. Some of you are like going like this. You've been there. Yeah. It gives a whole new meaning to dead weight, doesn't it? Yeah. Because you pick this pre these people up and you're trying to move and you get them in the body bag. It's sort of uncomfortable and you're sort of shoving them in there. And I'm just like, oh, I'm sorry. I hope that doesn't hurt. Oh, that must have hurt. I'm like, oh, there's no response from them. Because they are completely dead. They are completely lifeless. It doesn't matter what you do to them. There is no reaction out of them. 
And Paul says, this is what we are like when we come into this world. A completely dead spiritual corpse. Nothing we can do for ourselves. We are as lifeless as roadkill. And he says, now, let me explain to you what has killed you. It is your trespasses and sins that you are dead in. Now, let me explain to you the difference between these two. Because trespasses and sins, actually, they can be very similar, but there is some fine points of distinction. So let me just share these with you. Trespasses are things we choose to do wrong, such as trespassing. You know, the sign says, no trespassing. Don't walk on my grass. And somebody says, I'm going to choose to do wrong. I'm going to leave the road. I'm going to walk on your grass. So trespassing sometimes can be called sins of commission. It's what we choose to do wrong. Sins is the things we often fail to do right. Uh, Sin is actually originally an archery term. It's when you shoot for the bullseye, and guess what? Even though you try to hit the bullseye, you don't hit the bullseye. You're off. You have sinned. You have fallen short of the mark. Sometimes you could call this sins of omission. So I know that some of you may want to quibble on it, and that's, I'm not, this is not an airtight explanation, so go easy on me, but this is a simple point. We sin by the things we choose to do wrong, and we also sin by the things we fail to do right. Maybe I can illustrate it to you this way. Imagine you are in the comfort of your living room. You're looking out in your living room. It's nice and warm, and you see the neighbor across the street shoveling the snow in his driveway. You know the reason he's shoveling the snow is because two weeks before, he left his garage door open. Somebody came, and would you believe it? They stole his snowblower. They were thieves, terrible. They trespassed on his lawn. They took his stuff. Can you believe that people are that wicked and sinful? And you watch him continuing to shovel, and you sit there and sip your hot cocoa in the comfort of your home. But you realize the Bible also says you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And if you were stuck shoveling your driveway because somebody stole your snowblower, wouldn't you want your neighbor to come out of his home and help shovel it with you? And by sitting there and and not necessarily loving our neighbor, once again, we've failed. Once again, we've sinned. We've fallen short of the mark of perfection, of what it means to love our neighbor as ourself. And soon you realize that we are in a desperate situation because sin is not just the things we choose to do wrong. As I said, it's the things we fail to do right. And so we sin all the time. And there's nothing we can do to stop it. The Bible, remember, describes us as completely spiritually dead. Now, knowing that the proper way to think of someone apart from Christ is completely spiritually dead helps us to correct some of the terminology that is often used in the modern church, which actually isn't true. Like, for instance, have you ever heard of... In the modern church, people use the term a spiritual seeker. You know, they're not a Christian yet. They're just, they're seeking Christ. Has anybody heard that one before? Yeah. You know that's biblically not true. 
nobody is technically a spiritual seeker. There is no such thing as a spiritual seeker. Because before Christ, we are spiritually dead. Dead people do not seek Christ. Dead people cannot seek Christ. Now, some of you may think, well, maybe I'm pushing a point a little too far. I can show you Bible verses. In fact, Paul says there's no such thing as a spiritual seeker in Romans 3. No one understands. No one seeks for God. And the reason no one seeks God is because they are spiritually, what? Dead. Paul, or Jesus, says it this way. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one is seeking God. And if you find somebody who is becoming soft to the things of God, it's not technically because they are seeking God. It's because God is seeking them and God is drawing them to himself because they are spiritually dead. Now, this completely flies in the face of what popular culture teaches us about ourselves and how to think about ourselves. Because culture teaches us that we are basically good people. And what the problems are in this world is their economics and their educational. If you could just give people the right amount of economics, you could just put them in a financially comfortable situation, everybody would get along well. That's what the world teaches us. That's not what the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches us we are spiritually dead we are actually completely sinful people in tough economic situations, in tough financial situations. All they do is reveal the sin that is in our heart. They don't create the sin that is in our heart. Did you understand that? Tough circumstances reveal our sinfulness. They don't create our sinfulness because by nature we are spiritually dead. Now, what Paul does as he continues along, he describes what is actually controlling and leading people who are spiritually dead in this world. And he talks about three controlling influences. The first one is this. He says, before Christ, we were following the world's value system, of which you once walked following the course of this world, he says. Have you noticed that our society is actually organized in opposition to God's will and to God's ways? That the flow of our culture is not in the flow of the direction of godliness. You can simply prove that by just going to rent a movie. You ever try to find a decent movie to watch? Everything seems to be filled with sex, extramarital sex, premarital sex, Lots of body bags, lots of violence, lots of lust, lots of deceit, lots of hatred. Now, as Christians, we say it's so difficult to find a decent movie to watch these days because we are not going with the cultural flow. We have been recreated by Jesus. We are not spiritually dead anymore. We're swimming against the cultural flow. We're like salmon. You know, we're going upstream rather than downstream. But here's the thing to realize the rest of the culture apart from Christ likes those movies. 
accepts those movies. That's the pattern and direction of their heart and soul because they are spiritually dead. So, because people are spiritually dead, one of the big strong influences in their life is the value system of our culture, which you can see in movies today. Another way you can see this is uh, there's a real strong push in our culture for, I get this all right, these acronyms, LGBTQ, I think I got all the right ones in there, agenda. You know, that you should be accepting the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queers, and you should be endorsing their value and sexual preferences. Now, uh, in one sense, obviously, they're humans, they deserve human rights, and of course, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we have to endorse their lifestyle and value system. And as Christians, we obviously are swimming against the cultural stream on that. But you need to realize that most of the culture is swimming with those values. Some of you may have seen this on the news recently. Uh, the lady's name is Isabella Chow. If you want, you can go home and look her up on the internet. She is a Christian student that goes to the University of California, Berkeley. She was on the student senate, and the student senate uh, was going to pass a, a vote that would, uh, it's not an official vote, but an endorse, a vote to accept LGBTQ uh, people, and not only to accept them, but to endorse their values and their lifestyle. And she says, I can't vote for that. I will abstain from that because it's not with my Christian values. And as a result, she was mercilessly persecuted on her campus. And they were trying to force her to resign from her position on student government because she was not going along with the flow of the values of society. Because dead people who don't have spiritual life will be led by society. The other example, he says this, that leads people who are spiritually dead. We were following the guidance of Satan, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The Bible is very clear that the vast majority of well, tyranny, abuse, and wickedness in this planet is coming from and directed by a real honest to goodness, wicked being called Satan. And he has helpers with him called fallen angels, also known as demons. And they are actively involved in this world, trying to lead it to destruction. Now, just so you know, by the way, uh, Satan is not the equal and opposite of God. He is a created being by God who is inferior to God, but he is in rebellion to God. And the thing is that today it is not trendy to believe that Satan is a real spiritual being. Most people think he's just a mythological creature or something that's made up. But I need to tell you that the scriptures tell us very clearly that Satan is real. Here's an example. Jesus said this, And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. A myth or an idea does not fall from heaven like, for like lightning from heaven. Jesus said this. So if Jesus says that Satan exists, guess what? He exists. And as I said, Satan and his demons uh, are not watching us like we watch the Vikings. I mean, we watch the Vikings from a distance, right? We're not involved in the game. But Satan and his demons are very much involved in the game. 
Look what it says here. And most people skip this. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Apart from Christ, nobody is spiritually neutral. Satan and his demons are at work in their life, pulling them and directing them. They may not be as wicked as they can be, but ultimately, Satan is the influence in their life. Some people are very overtly satanically directed. Other people are very covertly satanically directed. But he is the prince of the power of the air who is um, trying to pull and direct people's lives apart from Jesus. The point to understand, there is no such thing as spiritually neutral apart from Christ. Now, we've seen that those who are spiritually dead are controlled by the fallen culture of this world. Those who are spiritually dead are under the influence of Satan and the demons of this world. But then he moves on from things that are outside of us, and he talks about things that are inside of us. Those who are spiritually dead are this. We were following our fleshly desires, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. As soon as we read something that talks about the passions of the flesh, one of the first things we think about is the sexual passions of the flesh. And that is true. We do have uh, sexual passions that can lead us astray. But that is not the full extent of what Paul is addressing here when he talks about the passions of the flesh. He says that inside of us, each one of us has um, natural desires that if there is not the Holy Spirit controlling our life, those natural desires are going to be what controls and directs our life. The best way to describe that is this. Those natural desires are called money, sex, and power. People live to get more money. What do I need to do to get richer? What do I need to do to get more sex and better sex? And then what do I need to do to be in power and control over other people? And that's what people live for. They're like brute beasts. You just live by those instincts and those bodily cravings. So the picture, the picture that uh, the Bible gives us is very bleak when it comes to who we are apart from Jesus or before Jesus. We are completely and totally spiritually dead. Nothing we can do to save ourselves. We're controlled by our trespasses and sins. Outside of us, we helplessly follow, follow the value systems of the world. We are led and directed by Satan. And inside of ourselves, we are like brute beasts that just follow the instincts of our lives for money, sex, and power. We are hopeless. In fact, the Bible says this, we were fully deserving of God's wrath. We were by nature, he says, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul summarizes it in different verses in Romans this way. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Or Romans 3. 
as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. That's the summary of every single person on the planet, doesn't matter who they are, apart from Jesus Christ. Now, I hope you're a little depressed because the Bible wants you to be depressed when you look at your fallen, sinful condition. In fact, if you're not depressed, I haven't done a good job of preaching this part of the text because it wants you to see yourself as so hopeless. But here's where the good news comes. God comes to the rescue. Here's what we learn. Through Jesus, though, we are spiritually alive and seated with Christ, and God brought us to life through Jesus because of his mercy and his love. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Jesus. God is incredibly kind. He is incredibly loving. He is incredibly merciful. Even when we were spiritually dead, deserving his wrath, he decided to show us love and mercy. We were literally spiritual corpses, and he chose to raise us to life with his son, Jesus Christ. Remember, we couldn't do anything to choose God because we were dead. So God chose us. And God chose to make us alive. Just as he raised his son Jesus to life physically, he raised us to life spiritually. It's all from Jesus. And it's all from God. Now, how does this work in a practical sense? How does God create spiritual life in people like you and me? Last week, we learned that he, in an ultimate sense, in eternity past, he decided to put us together with his son. But how does this work in a practical sense? What happens is, is when somebody comes along and they present the truth of Jesus Christ, there are two different reactions that people have in the audience. Some people will instantly see Jesus as foolishness. They'll see him as nothing important, or how could this be true? And the reason they see Jesus Christ as foolishness is because they are spiritually dead. There is no spiritual life in them. But other people will hear the same message. The Holy Spirit will work in their heart, will quicken them in their life. And all of a sudden, what is foolishness to one person will make very good sense to another person. And God will bring them to life through the preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ. By the way, this is exactly the way we see it unfolding in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a story of the spread of the church. And this is what we find when people shared the good news of Jesus. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word, of the, the word of the Lord. And then it says, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Those who had been chosen in eternity past and that God had appointed to quicken their hearts, they responded by believing in their life. 
Now it continues. The only reason we are saved is God's grace, not our goodness. In fact, here's one of his most famous lines. For by grace you have been saved. We were spiritually dead with no ability to choose God, but God chose us. God is the one who made us alive. And my friends, this is what makes the Christian faith completely different from all other faiths. All other religions out there, what they do is they say, this is what we believe God is like. We make God in our image. And then here is what you need to do to pursue God. The Christian faith is different. Instead of somebody creating God into what they think he is like, now we have God revealing himself, telling us what he actually is like. Instead of us pursuing God, it is God who pursues us. We were spiritually dead, remember? God is the one who chose to make us spiritually alive. So the truth is that God gets all the credit for our relationship with him. We don't get any of the credit for our relationship with him. It's not that you know, God did 90% and we do 10%. Technically, God does 100%. We couldn't do anything. We were dead spiritually. Now, here's where it gets really exciting. Not only does God make us alive, but in heaven we are so blessed that we sit with Jesus. Paul continues, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Not just have we gone from spiritual death and been resurrected to life through Jesus, but when he raised us to life, he seated us with Jesus in heaven. Literally, we are sitting on Jesus' lap in heaven. Every other being would look at us with great admiration and appreciation because no other being in the entire universe is as blessed as we are through Jesus. Maybe a good way to put it to you is this. When my kids were little, not now, when they were little, they used to love and come and sit on dad's lap. Dad's lap was a, was a safe place. It's a, it's a good place. It's a place where they would get hugs. It's a place where I'd give them a little back rub and run my fingers through their hair. And it's a place where they, I'd bounce them on my knee. It was a place of honor because only my kids could sit on my lap. Folks, we are seated with Jesus in heaven. We're his kids. We are sitting on his lap, the place of honor, the place of privilege. No other being in the entire universe will sit on the lap of Jesus besides us. Now, I told you, Jesus is the best Christmas gift, didn't I? Isn't he? It gets better. You think of it this way. Uh, Jesus is actually seated on a throne. He's seated, the scripture says, at the right hand of the Father. So maybe you can analogize it this way. If you've been over my home, you know we have a dining room table. 
And there's one chair at that table that I, as the father, typically sit in. And people have asked me when they come over for a meal, they say, hey, where is your chair? I don't want to sit in your chair. Because they know that my chair is the place of honor. My chair is the place of respect. That's like the head chair at the table. And I appreciate when they say that. But here's the truth. Not only are we seated in Jesus' lap, but we are seated with him in Jesus' chair at the right hand of the Father. Do you understand how incredibly privileged we are? How incredibly blessed we are? We started out as spiritually dead, fully deserving God's wrath, directed and controlled by Satan and just our brute bodily passions. We've been made alive through Jesus and seated with him on his lap in heaven and in his chair in heaven. Nothing else is as blessed as we are. I told you, Jesus is the best Christmas gift and by far. And the story continues. In eternity, the blessings we have through Jesus just keep getting better. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. In eternity, year after year, century after century, millennium after millennium, even though we are already the most blessed beings in the universe, do you know what? It's going to continually get better and improve with the passing of time. I cannot imagine what it would be like to be more blessed than to be sitting on Jesus' lap in Jesus' chair. But this says here that literally in the coming ages, the immeasurable riches of His grace, somehow it's going to constantly get better for us. Every blessing that God gives to us will come through Jesus and come upon us. It's sort of like reading a good book. Do you ever get to the, a, a really good book? When you finish one chapter, you can't put it down because you want to go to the next because it just keeps getting better? That's what it's like for you and me for all of eternity through Jesus, and we deserve none of this. Now, let me go to the last page here and sort of summarize things. How should I respond to what God has done for me through Jesus, the best Christmas gift? Paul says this, first of all, be filled with gratitude and humility. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. The fact that we are the most blessed beings in the universe has nothing to do with what we did. It's all a gift from God. And so when we see other people who are making maybe poor choices, uh, maybe not living the right way, there's no room for saying, well, I made better choices. I did better things. The only reason we are what we are is because of the grace of Jesus Christ. Isn't that true? So there's no room for pride. The, we should just be oozing humility and gratitude to Jesus every day in every way. In fact, let me just tell you, that's one of the reasons in the church we sing real loud when we're singing to Jesus. 
We're not singing real loud because we like the music or we like the beat. We're singing real loud because our hearts are filled with gratitude to God for Jesus Christ and what he has done for us that we don't deserve. We sing real loud because we know we were spiritually dead and deserving of wrath, but we're now made the most blessed beings in the universe and we did nothing to deserve it. So, there's no room for boasting, just gratitude and humility. And the other way that we're supposed to respond, Paul says, is this. To get out of your way, go out of your way and serve and love people. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This word workmanship is the Greek word poemo, which is where we get our word poem. And what it literally means is your masterpiece, your finest work of art. Do you understand this? You and I as Christians are God's finest work in the universe. Nothing he will do will be improved upon compared to what he has done for us through Jesus. From death and wrath to the most blessed beings in the universe, all through his Son. And if God has done such good work for us, how can we not in turn go out of our way to do good works for other people? That's why as Christians, we're to know, be known as people who are constantly oozing good works because we are filled with gratitude for God's good work to us. So Jesus, without question, he is the best Christmas gift that has ever been given and the best Christmas gift you could ever receive. If this morning you are here and you have not asked Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, if you have not gone from spiritual death to spiritual life, I ask that you would confess your sins to Jesus and ask Jesus' death on the cross to pay for your sins and that you would be born again and receive the best gift in the entire universe. Let's pray. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.